Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 43, Spaceflight. Even if we're not all queuing up to fly to the moon just yet, our robots are flying all over the solar system, and in doing so they are laying down a few ground rules for how we might travel around in the future. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, How low can you go and still maintain an orbit? Assuming planets were perfectly inelastic spheres with no atmosphere, then there'd be no hypothetical limit to how low you could orbit. But since planets aren't perfect inelastic spheres, and they generally do have atmospheres, there's a point below which orbiting just becomes impractical. On Earth, this is largely due to the high energy cost of trying to maintain an orbit against atmospheric drag. Below 40 kilometers altitude, it's vastly easier just to use aircraft, since you can take off, do some science, and then land again and spend the night in an inexpensive motel. Any higher than 40 kilometers, there's just not enough air density for aeronautics, but in this region there's still a whole bunch of cost-benefit issues to weigh up. There's still a sparse atmosphere at these altitudes, which means that the lower your orbit is, the more fuel you'll have to burn just to maintain that orbit against atmospheric drag. So it works out that even though you need to burn a lot more fuel to get to a higher orbit, once you're there, you can coast a lot more because there's less atmospheric drag to contend with. Mind you, that all assumes you want to stay in orbit for a long time, like a year or more. One of our lowest orbiting satellites, which had no rockets it could fire to correct its orbit, was Sputnik 1, which managed 1,440 elliptical orbits around Earth over the course of three months, where those orbits had a perigee of just 215 kilometres. However, Sputnik's orbital apogee was 900 kilometres, which is well above the more circular orbits of Skylab at 235 kilometres, Mir at 360 kilometres, the ISS at about 400 kilometres, and the Hubble Space Telescope at 570 kilometres. All these spacecraft stayed in low Earth orbits for years at a time, but only as a result of altitude reboosting by visiting spacecraft and with the additional help of onboard boosters in the case of the ISS. But anyway, that's just Earth. Even if planets don't have dense atmospheres like Earth, there are still gravitational and tidal influences to think about. A very massive satellite, like a moon, in orbit around a planet, creates a tidal bulge on that planet, literally stretching the planet towards itself. So, for example, Phobos in orbit around Mars orbits Mars faster than the planet rotates. So the tidal bulge it creates is pulling back on it as it goes around, which slows down its orbit. 
As a result of this, it's estimated that Phobos's altitude will keep declining slowly and steadily until it reaches Mars's Roche limit and gets torn to bits about 30 million years from now. On the other hand, the orbital velocity of the Earth's moon is being slowly accelerated by the tidal bulge it creates on Earth, which is constantly pushing the moon forward due to the fact that the Earth rotates faster than the moon orbits. So the steady acceleration of the moon's orbital velocity is raising the moon's orbit by about 4 centimetres a year. The happy medium between those two scenarios is what's known as a synchronous orbit, where the satellite's orbital period is the same as the planet's rotational period. So for Earth, a satellite is in a synchronous orbit at around 36,000 kilometres. For Mars, which has a similar rotational period to Earth, but a lot less gravity, the altitude of a synchronous orbit around it is about 17,000 kilometres. However, a synchronous orbit is a knife-edge balance. So all our geostationary satellites that are in synchronous orbits around Earth have to maintain station-keeping. That is, they have to burn a bit of fuel to stay in position, even at 36,000 kilometres altitude. And apparently station-keeping is an even more challenging prospect around Mars, where the synchronous orbit is lower and the planet's lesser mass and gravity means its geometry is even less constrained towards forming a perfect sphere. For example, Mars has Olympus Mons, a 22-kilometre-high shield volcano, while the Earth has nothing higher than the 9-kilometre Mount Everest. Olympus Mons represents such a huge concentration of mass that it would give any low-altitude satellite a palpable hit of gravitational perturbation as it passed beneath it. So, in a nutshell, while low-altitude orbits are possible, they are generally energy-inefficient and just plain fiddly to manage. If you're in the artificial satellite business, it's much better to go high so you can go long. And thanks me. So there really is no such thing as a standard orbit. If you have an away team on the surface, a synchronous orbit might be best. But if you were doing a planet-wide survey, a faster-moving polar orbit might be best. So you go round and round while the planet rotates beneath you. And speaking of planets... If we are going to travel to them, there's a few things that we need to think through first. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, How exactly do we protect planets? Whoever fills the recently advertised position of Planetary Protection Officer at NASA will actually have two jobs on their hands. One job is to protect other planets from us, or at least from our microbes, and the other job is to protect our planet from microbes that might be returned from other planets. The level of risk we may face from alien microbes is a complete unknown, since we are yet to discover any alien microbes. It's not hugely likely that a completely alien microbe could immediately interact with Earth-based life, 
to cause death by disease or some other metabolic disruption. The bigger risk is that such microbes, or even macrobes, would find the Earth environment agreeable and begin to proliferate unchecked. Such alien microbes might have the kind of impact that fire ants, cane toads, cats, dogs and rabbits have had on the isolated continent of Australia. None of those invasive species had any intention of conquering the endemic life forms. They just weren't compatible with the endemic life forms and they could outbreed them. Anyway, there is a current Planetary Protection Officer, Catherine Connolly, and she has some experience with the resilience of space-borne organisms, even though those organisms are from Earth. The Space Shuttle Columbia's STS-107 mission in 2003, carried an experiment that investigated the growth and reproductive behaviour of the nematode worm, C. elegans, in microgravity. And Connolly was a co-investigator on that project. Columbia and its seven astronaut crew were lost when the orbiter disintegrated upon re-entry. But the nematodes, housed in small canisters, survived the entire re-entry event and were found alive on the ground. So, on the one hand, this finding supports the possibility of panspermia, and on the other hand indicates that even if one of our spacecraft crash-landed on another planet, it could still infect that other planet with life forms from Earth. What is less certain is whether Earth life forms, at least microbes, could survive for long periods in the harsh vacuum of space and the harsh radiation environment of space. We're still not sure whether a small colony of Streptococcus mitis, found inside the camera of Surveyor 3, after it was returned to Earth by the Apollo 12 astronauts, really survived on the Moon's surface for two and a half years, or whether someone accidentally contaminated it after the camera was brought back to Earth. However, a number of low-Earth orbit experiments with tardigrades and other microorganisms suggests it's possible an Earth microorganism might survive an unprotected seven-month journey to Mars, although a five- to ten-year journey to Jupiter or Saturn is another question. And whether any such Earth microorganisms could prosper and proliferate after arriving at such alien environments is also uncertain. Anyway, how do we protect planets? Well, the amount of trouble you will go to depends upon the planetary protection risk you will face. The relative risk of different space missions is categorised on a scale of 1 to 5. Category 1 missions don't need any special procedures, while Category 4 missions need the most rigorous interventions available and Category 5 missions are sample return missions, where Earth itself becomes one of the planets at risk. We then think about likelihood of contact. So a distant flyby is low risk, an orbit is medium risk, and a landing is high risk. And how the mission ends is also key. Once an orbiting spacecraft is out of fuel, it's also out of control. So, in the case of Jupiter and Saturn missions, we'd rather see the spacecraft descending into the gas giant's atmosphere 
than risk it crashing into a potentially life-bearing moon like Europa or Enceladus. So to achieve all this, we build spacecraft in clean rooms, and if it's going to a high-risk destination, we'll actively decontaminate it with various biological solvents, and then expose it to dry heat, and maybe then double-check the effect of all that by biological assays, and after that we'll do our best to keep it all sealed up until launch. From there we tend to leave it to the harsh vacuum and the harsh radiation of space to hopefully achieve the final cleanup. But since life will find a way, we know we're only doing the best that we can. And thanks me. Of course all these procedures are relatively straightforward while we are just flying robots around. But once you put astronauts in the mix, they're going to want to get out and walk around, and they'll want to eat and sleep, and do all the other things, as JFK used to say. So, are we really going to bag everything up and leave no trace behind when we leave? Maybe the first crew will, maybe even the second crew, but probably not the third. And when the colonists arrive, just forget it. But if you've got a space science question, or you just want to quote the prime directive at someone, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and let us clean their clocks for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.